Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the strange and fascinating history of an abbreviation you've probably never thought too much about. And then we'll talk about an interesting use of the subjunctive in Neil Gaiman's book, American Gods. Most of us are familiar with the abbreviated form EM standing in for a third-person plural pronoun in the expression, go get them. We can often be heard saying something like this in our casual speech, for instance, I'll pick them up or gotta love them. Because it's so similar in meaning to the modern pronoun them, it's very reasonable to assume that this M is simply the result of our tendency to shorten things. In other words, chopping the TH sound off them. Reasonable, perhaps, but surprisingly wrong. The actual etymological source for M is found in the original Old English pronoun system. In contrast, the modern pronoun them comes from the Old Norse borrowing theyem, which itself was the dative form of the Old Norse pronoun they, both of which are spelled with a letter we don't use in English anymore that's called a thorn and kind of looks like a lowercase p. This same Scandinavian Norse pronoun is what developed into the modern English they. Before they, though, there was hem, a third-person plural pronominal form that predated these Old Norse borrowings in the history of English. If you want to get technical, hem was the accusative plural of the Old English pronoun he, spelled H-I, from which we get the modern English pronoun he. Here's an example of how it was used in The Knight's Tale by Chaucer. And will not suffer in hem or in modern English, and will not allow them. If this all seems confusing, imagine what it must have been like in the Middle English period when hem and them coexisted. In very early English texts, such as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, first published in the late 9th century, we find the third-person pronoun hem used when referring to multiple people. In contrast, the Old Norse pronouns from which we get our modern pronouns they and them only began to be used around the 12th century and remained a form found mainly in more northern areas of Britain until a bit later in the Middle English period. As they became more popular, it spread to southern dialects, and we find they, again with that thorn spelling, used by Chaucer as a subject pronoun, though he still used the older hem pronoun when referring to grammatical objects. Here's an example from The Knight's Tale, where they is the subject in the first line, and hem is the object of a preposition in the next line. And thus they been departed till Amare, when each of hem had laid his faith to Borway. Or in modern English, and thus they are departed until morning, when each of them had laid his faith as a pledge. By the 18th century, hem only stuck around as a colloquial form, like when saying things like, stick em up. Given that both forms seem to have been around for a while, it might be tempting to dismiss this etymological story and just stick with the theory that M comes from them. But a key piece of evidence in support of modern M having come from hem is that there is no tendency toward omitting initial TH sounds in the history of English. However, there 
is a strong precedent for H sounds getting omitted, especially at the beginning of words. It's so common, it even has a name, H-dropping. Besides M, there are many other words that once began with H that now are pronounced without it. For instance, our modern pronoun it comes from the Old English pronoun hit, related to the same Old English pronoun he, H-I, that gave us him. In that case, we kept the pronoun but got rid of the H that was once its leading consonant. This H-dropping wasn't something that just affected pronouns. In fact, far from it. In Old English, one would have said halud for our modern word loud and hanut for what became the word nut. In all these examples, the word initial H sound was dropped in the late Old and early Middle English period as part of a larger tendency toward not pronouncing H sounds. Linguists believe this happened because H sounds are made with a puff of air from the glottis, which can easily weaken to a point where they're hard to hear. Far from being a thing of the past, this same process is still working its way through English. Not long ago, people pronounced words like whale and witch with an initial H sound, as in whale and witch. This original pronunciation can still be heard in some English dialects. For example, it's sometimes used in what's called received pronunciation in Britain, which is often considered to be a prestigious accent, and it can also be heard in even some older Southern American dialects. Even more modern examples of this H-dropping process abound, like when we hear someone saying the house for the house or horse for horse. This pronunciation is often stigmatized, especially in British English, but it's simply a continuation of something that's long been part of English, as can be seen in the development of M from hem and the fact that we never hear people complain about kids being too hallooed for loud anymore. This same pressure toward losing H sounds is found in many other languages, too, including Latin and French. So sometimes H-dropping occurred long before a word was borrowed into English. For example, a number of loan words like herb and honest came to English from French. When these words were borrowed into English, the H in the spelling probably represented how it was once said, but it probably wasn't pronounced any longer, either in French or in English. One might point out that standard British English says herb with an H sound, but a number of other British varieties and most American English varieties don't, suggesting that the H pronunciation wasn't the typical one before the settlement of the American colonies. That, as well as variability in how it was written, has led scholars to believe the Middle English pronunciation was without the H. So the modern British H pronunciation, herb, appears to have developed later based on how it was spelled, called the spelling pronunciation, which had the effect of restoring the original H sound. So amazingly, when you're saying something that sounds kind of informal, like go get them, you're actually using a fossilized form of an archaic English pronoun. Them might try to take all M's glory, but given that hem referred to our plural third persons much earlier than them and was used throughout the Middle English period, it only seems fitting that its legacy lives on. So how about we just give it to him? That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, who's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming book on all the speech habits we love to hate. 
She's also a language expert for Psychology Today, where she writes a monthly blog, Language in the Wild. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as FridlandValerie. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart? every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by The Podglomerate. Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bans across America to the world of ghostwriting. Not to mention host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico and Publishers Weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as the Washington Post and The Guardian said, missing pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. This next segment is by Edwin Battistella. So when I say I, that's him. He wondered if he were hallucinating. I came across that use of the subjunctive while listening to the audiobook of Neil Gaiman's American Gods. To me, the subjunctive mood, the if he were, sounded odd with the verb wondered, and it stuck in my ear. Then again, I don't use the subjunctive very often. I tend to use it sparingly on the rare occasions when I'm being directive or when I say things like, if I were you, I'd dot dot dot. Grammarians will tell you that mood is the way that a speaker's stance toward a statement is shown, whether it's a statement, command, wish, and so on. Experts differ on how many moods English has, but the language isn't particularly moody. The indicative is used to make statements. The imperative is for commands and prohibitions. The conditional is used for various prerequisites, like if you wash the dishes, I'll put them away, or I'll give you a ride if I can. The subjunctive mood with a bare verb is used after verbs that express a demand, recommendation, request, or necessity, as in, I insist that everyone be punctual, I suggest you be careful, or it's required that everyone show identification. 
The subjunctive with were is used in expressions that set up situations that are unreal, hypothetical, or contrary to fact, or in suppositions or wishes. Were I living on Mars, I might have super strength because of the gravity. If I were at my computer, I could look that up. Were I stranded on a desert island, I don't suppose I'd survive long. The subjunctive also crops up in some fixed phrases like, as it were, be that as it may, and so be it. It had been more of a vital feature of grammar in Old and Middle English, where the subjunctive was used to signal indirect speech and a range of dependent clauses. Over the centuries, many of its functions were taken over by other grammatical tricks. Getting back to American gods, I was puzzled by the use of if he were after the verb wondered, since the wondering seemed to me to conflict with the idea of things being hypothetical or unreal. The character's shadow just wasn't sure if he was hallucinating. Spoiler alert, he probably was, because he'd just been talking to his dead wife and a squirrel was about to offer him a drink of water from a walnut shell. It seemed to me that I would write things like, he wondered if he was ill. She wondered if she was winning. I wondered if I was overthinking things. All of these sound odd to me with the subjunctive were substituted for was. He wondered if he were ill. She wondered if she were winning. I wondered if I were overthinking things. But it turns out that Gaiman's use of the subjunctive isn't all that unusual. Print usage seems split. A quick search of Google Books revealed authors using examples like, he wondered if he was alive, she wondered if she was really interested in him, and he wondered if he was dying. But also examples like these, he wondered if he were the only one alive, she wondered if she were dreaming, he wondered if he were going to sleep. Writers and editors, I asked, were also split. Some said they'd use was in casual conversation, but were in writing. A couple indicated that their intuitions on the matter were influenced by French or Spanish grammar, where a more robust subjunctive is used to indicate uncertainty as opposed to fact. Maybe Neil Gaiman or his editor was influenced by French. What's more likely is that Gaiman is using the word subjunctive as a purposeful bit of formality to add some drama to the character's perplexity. At an earlier key moment in American Gods, we find another example. Cherneborg looked as if he were about to protest, and then the fight went out of him. Here, too, the subjunctive seems to underscore the uncertainty of the moment. Yet at other places in the novel, where there's less tension, Gaiman uses the simple past tense. He wondered if she was taking tranquilizers. Shadow wondered coldly and idly if he was going to die. For one moment, he wondered if the man was crazy. H.W. Fowler called the subjunctive moribund in his 1926 Dictionary of Modern English Usage, but noted that a few uses were surviving. For writers of narrative, this may be one of them. That segment was written by Edwin Battistella, who teaches linguistics and writing at Southern Oregon University in Ashland, where he's also served as a dean and as interim provost. He's the author of Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels, Insulting the President from Washington to Trump, do you make these mistakes in English and bad language? This piece originally appeared on the OUP blog and is included here with permission. Finally, I have a familect story from Melissa. 
Hi, Mignon. My name is Melissa Schubert, and I live in Florida, and I love your podcast. So enjoying it. And I have a family to share with you. Um, my whole growing up, my mom and dad would bring me little surprises from different places they would visit, and they called them sussies, S-U-S-S-I-E-S. So all growing up, I thought that was a real word until I was probably 25 years old, years old and... I got a package from someone while I was standing with a friend. And when I opened the package, I said, oh, that's so fun. I got this little sussy. And she said, a sussy? What are you talking about? And that was the moment I realized that that was a family, that no one else knew what that word was except for my family and me. So just wanted to share that. Again, love your podcast and very enriched by it. Have a great day. Thanks, Melissa. I love those stories when people use a word for years without realizing it's only their family that uses it. If you want to call with a story of your familect, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL. Call from a nice, quiet place, and I might use it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. And our intern is Brendan Pika, who accidentally ended up on a 20-mile hike loop while camping in Glacier National Park. He says it took all day to hike, but was the most beautiful hike he's ever done. And while his feet did regret it, he certainly didn't. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.